On this week's show, prime numbers, clinical trials, erectile dysfunction in fruit, RNA death stuff, and the periodic table. Let's do it. Three, two, one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. Chugging along, this is episode number 119, recorded January 20th, 2016. And it is a happy day in the beta sandwich world because we have everyone with us and you probably are all aware of everyone at this point, but of course we are going to introduce them. We have Christian Copley-Salem, our PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology and physiology. Yay. <laughs> that was different from the other times. It was. I'm trying to break, shake it up a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Break <laughs> the mold. Shake it up a little. You're, 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 you're swifting it. Boom. Um, the kids know what that means. Tay Tay. Yeah, you don't. I really don't. <laughs> Carolina Balkenbush, our registered dietitian in Las Vegas, Nevada, Sin City. Hello, Carolina. Hey. <laughs> hey. You, I love that. <laughs> I resist the urge to comment. Uh, That's good. You just your hate. Well, that was a that was a punchline of a joke, but we're trying to be more politically. Gotcha. Uh, so, Miss um, Balkenbush, how are you doing? Do you have um, uh, anything new we need to know about on the food world? Yes, you should check out my uh, my site. There's a delicious recipe for risotto on there. I learned the professional correct way to, to make it from my sister, and I made a vegan version that's still creamy. It's really tasty. Oh, well, it, that, yeah, it seems very counterintuitive because cream and butter are, like, probably more important than the rice itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, from the constant stirring, when you get all the grains of rice bumping up against each other, it uh, some of the starch comes out, and it makes it kind of gooey and creamy and amazing. So it doesn't well, even cool. need risotto, cream. I was not introduced to risotto until I was about 25, and it pretty much changed my life it's, thereafter. It's it's pretty special. It is very special. Well, be sure to check that out. And I haven't forgot about you, Dell. We have Dr. Dell Jackson, PhD, biomedical engineering. Wow, that's a mouthful. Mouthful? Like mouthful. You know what I meant. Hello. How you, how you doing, Dr. D? I'm all right little busy time of year here at work probably the busiest time of year but it's not too bad um you always seem pretty busy though you <laughs> yeah. keep yourself busy it's even more it's exceptionally busy or it's our big trade show of the year the, the uh, big yeah, uh, I imagine the really big shoe so to speak and so um we're getting ready for that understood understood cool i'm scott barnett I do what Christian does. No, you don't. Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> That's so. awesome. <laughs> oh man. So, uh, any anyone have fun this week? Oh, I did want to do a follow up. Uh, so, one of the reviewers last week that I mentioned, his name was Tim USMC, and I was very impri- surprised and impressed. We had a marine listener. Well, and you I said him. his name, Tim. <laughs> then I insulted him, which is fine because it turns out I know Tim. Oh, uh, Tim and I, we served in Iraq together. He's a CH-53 pilot. Uh, the CH-53 is a super stallion. That's the name of the the, the, the the aircraft. It is it is mind-bogglingly large, and it scale does nothing to it in images. It's 27 feet high. It's 100 feet long. It can hold 37 combat-laden troops. It can, like, lift up Humvees and howitzers and tow them around. It's It's... And absolutely, it's the blue whale of helicopters, and it's just such an incredible. It takes a crew of five to fly the thing. It's an absolutely incredible piece of machinery here. But yes, that's what that's what Tim does. Uh, he's retiring soon, and uh, I, I haven't talked to Tim in years. Um, 
uh, I don't I don't think I've actually had a physical conversation with him since since Iraq. So it was really cool to to know you. What he said was he's like, yeah, I just had mouth surgery and like I'm doped up on uh, on pain meds and I needed something to do. So <laughs> and as awesome. it's a well established fact that our show is much better when you're doped up on pain meds. So he picked the right time to dig into it. So anyway, so thank you, Tim. So glad you're listening. So you guys do anything fun? Anything interesting? Noteworthy? <laughs> uh, no, but did you know that uh, on January 20th, which is today, except in 1820, Alexander Emile Beguire de Chancourtois was born? No. Everyone knows that. <laughs> You're kind Literally. of pandering. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I know you so knew that. So what, what did Mr. Bluetois do? Uh, he came up with the uh, telluric helix, which is a, the first version of the what we know as a periodic table and is an awesome segue into my science story, which will come later in the show, but I'm just throwing that out there. Oh, nice little tease. Very good. Wow. As uh, most of you know, because I wouldn't shut up about it, I went to the SpaceX launch this weekend. Oh, and, did you? Uh, I did. Um, are you being... Facetious. No, I knew you were talking about it, but I could not tell you when it was gonna. It could have been like the next yeah, day. Or it was this weekend. Next year, I didn't have any concept of that. And uh, I had to drive eight hours down to uh, about an hour north of Santa Barbara, and was down there. I camped out and I went to the launch the next day, and like, <laughs> just like the biggest worry you have is that like. Like if if someone sneezes in Indonesia, there's a good chance that like launch will get canceled. Like there are so many variables that will cancel a launch, and they won't hesitate to do it. Well, the launch went off without a hitch, and it turns out one variable that is not a significant issue, which one would expect would be, is fog. And this time of year in that area, there is, it is a fog-prone area, and it we were me and 150 other people. We're all looking out into a great, vast, opaque white sky and then Ouch. hearing something go <laughs> off into the distance. And that was the entire experience. So that was deeply unfortunate. But it was still a lot of fun. You got it like learned a lot about it. I met tons of people from NASA, tons of people from SpaceX, and just like kind of really cool like group of people. And like so you know Elon Musk is the is the the, the head guy at um SpaceX and, and Tesla, and he's got this like cult godlike status around there, as you would imagine. And like, there were all people were always whispering. I, through a series of very fortunate events and people I know, I was able to get a VIP pass into the SpaceX area. So I was with all the Lottie Da people, and you would hear somebody like, Oh, I heard Elon's coming. He should be here anytime now. And like everyone's like giddy. They're like, "Oh yeah, exactly." They're like, "He'll be here anytime now." Well, he never showed up, but it was it was still funny. So, uh, um, it, yeah, it so. failed. Was that the uh, so the launch went failed? off without a hitch? The launch went perfectly, but what failed was the landing. They tried doing their third ocean landing. If the first two ocean landings were failures. The, then they went and did a land, a land-based landing, and that worked perfect. And then they're like, "Let's do an ocean one again." And they were worried from the get-go, and they almost scrapped it because there was like 15-foot seas where they were trying to land it on this platform. And so they went out there, and again, it, like it gets better every time. If you watch the video, this thing like comes right down, it lands perfectly, and then there's like a two Mississippi, and then you just start seeing it lean. 
And I think it was a combination of a faulty tripod leg on the, the rocket and the seas being really rough, so they were pushing it off and putting tons of pressure on the weakened leg. And so after that two Mississippi, the thing just goes, like that was that so uh, uh unfortunate but they, if you watch the three of failures like each one is less of a failure so you like can see they're dialing in what they need to do so they'll get there it's just uh do you yeah, know why they're trying to do the ocean landing is it just because it's safer uh yeah in this case in particular uh where they launch is even though it's an air force base it's got a lot of like a lot of environmental considerations and they don't want rockets exploding in delicate ecosystems uh and it's also easier to launch land it at sea simply because it's gone out so far over the ocean it's a lot less distance it has to come back so i think logistically it's a little easier uh so in a perfect world sea in, in sea landings are great because you can move the platform to wherever it needs to be versus having to get something to come back to where it launched so so i think that's the the primary reason but yeah it's proving to be difficult so hmm. Anyway, so cool. Well, I'm glad you got Christian, to go you when it wasn't up. canceled. Yeah, and it looks like there's going to be another one. And and my cousin, who was this person with all these higher privileges that got me into the SpaceX VIP area and stuff, and he's like, "Don't worry, Scott. I'm trying to get us on the vomit comet. You guys know what the vomit comet is? <laughs> That's that parabolic arc aircraft. So that basically it follows a parabolic oh, yeah. arc, and you're weightless for like 45 seconds, like at the top of the parabolic arc, and and it's as close as you get to space. So they call it the vomit comet because apparently most people lose it at some point. Um, but in any case, so if he makes up for doing that, that would be about the coolest thing on the planet. But uh, I'm not holding my breath on that one. So or my stomach. <laughs> <laughs> um. Christian, you said something about your qualifier. Yeah, I think I you, you do have some news. No, I just wrote it. Writing it. Still writing it. Still working on it. But you're on the home stretch. I'm on the home stretch. I have 700 people who sent me their qualifiers as examples, and they're all friggin' six pages long, and that is useless to me. <laughs> Utterly useless to me. So. Yeah. Because they all got to write whatever silly little grant that is, and now it's an R01. So. It was supposed to be an F-31 initially, if you are familiar with grants. Um, yeah, which is a six-page grant. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, mine fell in the middle. Like I said, mine was 11 pages start to finish, but yours is the whole hog, and uh, yes. you are in an unenvious position. Yes. Terrifying. Good times, good times. So, okay. um, well, 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 well. Science class. Ha. WTF, friends. You, you can't this just, is, you keep sneaking that up on us like that. Yeah, we weren't ready. We don't I have to so, sneak it up. You've got a five-second lead-in to do one pew. Now that there's noise, do we still have to do the pew? I mean, the noise was always there. <laughs> but we never heard it. Now that yeah. I hear it, I, I enjoy hearing it. It's very melodic. This was supposed to be a seamless transition to our listeners, and it, you guys are making this very It is You'll a seamless, they'll just lay a premature segue. Ready. <laughs> People have wrote Speaking us saying how much they like the pews. You're spitting in <laughs> their face. And dysfunctions of erectiles. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Thank you for another premature segue after your story. <laughs> up, up, oh, no. A lot of innuendos here. <laughs> Drop the bomb, Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> well, Carolina was c- concerned about timing, and I think she wanted to go last. No, no, just no. In I, case. I, can, I can go first. I'll just I'll talk about this okay. one really quick. 
Okay, so uh, January 13th, there was a new study reported in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition that is um, uh, followed 25,000 people, uh, men specifically, um, since 1986 and basically surveyed them on various uh, lifestyle habits and also um, asked them every four years um basically what their ability was to have and maintain an erection sufficient for intercourse. And researchers compared their answers to the amount of flavonoid-rich food the men reported eating in separate food questionnaires. And basically, so so they found that flavonoid-rich foods, specifically um, foods that are high in um, certain subgroups of flavonoids, flavonoids are basically antioxidants, um, in the diet. So they have lots of different subcategories, different types based on structure. And so the ones that were the most effective or most likely associated with a decreased risk of erectile dysfunction were the flavonones. Um, uh, so, so flavones, flavonones, and anthocyanins. So flavones are found in, um, those are in uh, citrus fruits, berries, and cherries. Anthocyanins are found in blueberries, cherries, blackberries, radishes, and red wines, basically anything red. And uh, flavonones are found in citrus fruits. So it's interesting because possibly a criticism could be that um, this is an association, not a causation type of study. Um, but even when they eliminated other factors of the diet and other lifestyle practices like exercise, they still did find that people, that the men who were eating the highest intake of these flavonoid rich foods had, uh, a 10% lower risk of, uh, or were less, 10% less likely to suffer erectile dysfunction than those who had the lowest intakes of the flavonoids. Uh, and it would make sense. I only eat flavonoids, <laughs> nothing else. That well, that and flavonoids, which uh, are those a lot beans? Of beans and yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so it would make sense that this would be associated with decreased risk of um, erectile dysfunction because flavonoids are well known to uh, reduce cardiovascular disease and uh, other vascular issues. And since erections are a vascular condition, it probably is. Th- these uh, antioxidants are probably serving to protect the blood vessels in the penis. So you're more likely to uh, be able to get it up later on in life. Um, that won't be recorded. So there, uh, that's basically the story. That's um, a very uplifting story, Carolina. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome. So just to- yeah, that will be hard to follow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's just a quickie, so. Wham! <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, it, Penis balls. It's good to be here <laughs> with the show. Bob wasn't now. very creative. <laughs> so, so benefits of flavonoid intake were greatest in men under seventy. Uh, researchers found, and I would say that okay. So, so they said that the reduction in risk of ED was uh, about the same as taking a brisk walk for three to five hours a week. That helps too. Very helpful. Yes, exercise also okay. helps with circulation. Doesn't it always? Helps with everything. But I was very excited to tell my husband this because I've been trying to get him to eat more fruit for <laughs> for months. <laughs> I thought that was gonna end. You know, anything oh, that man. gets people to eat better. <laughs> it is encouraging. Speaking of uh, of of 
things that are hard to do. Um, prime numbers. This is a real quickie here. Oh. Just a day or two ago, you, the wow. largest prime number uh, yes, ever yes, me, was found. Calling me. I know. <laughs> what is, oh, so what is it? Three. 22 million digits long. That's exactly right. And it's a right. Marsan. It's digits. a Marsan prime. So what Do you is know how Marsan many Marsan prime? primes there are? There's only like 50 or something, well, right? I think. Well, I wasn't sure. I, this is either the 49th or the 50th. Um, so uh-huh. they said that there are 49. I didn't know if the story had included this one. So if you can take a, num- uh, uh, a number that is 2 to the power of something and then subtract 1 from that number. Right. That is the Marsan prime. And this was prime. 2 to the power of 74,207,281. Minus, minus one. 1. That's, where the min- that's why yes. the minus 1 is in there. And fun fact about uh, prime numbers, and especially the Marsan prime numbers, you can go to marsan.org, M-E-R-S-E-N-N-E, or go to our website, and I'll put a link on there. And they have a program, whether you're on a Mac or Linux or Windows, and you can download it, and you can start trying to find your own highest prime number possible out there, although there's an infinite number of ones. And uh, the person who did this did it with just a Core i7 computer. It wasn't even like a crazy super... 80 core computer so uh, it is possible with enough time and discipline that you can probably find your own uh, large prime number here he had done it before in 2013 right this guy's done a few of them before so i don't know what like you would think that if this there's enough nerds out there that if this was easily accomplishable with time or money or whatever people would be beating this person because he found it with a core i7 so there must be something a little more to it but you can go to the website you can check it all out and you can you can do it yourself and if you're the first person to make it to a prime number with a hundred million digits you get hundred fifty thousand dollars so get to getting get to getting so oh man everyone's got stories i gotta do my story though that was your story no i've got a really good one this week nobody believes that Mine is relatively it, short. My story, that is. Okay. <laughs> why don't you... Doing a new one. This shows it a new low. Eat some flavonoids. Why, <laughs> why don't you do your one story? I'll do mine, and we'll close it out with Dell. Okay. So I, I have a, a short little story here, but I want to do something new just for fun because I'm always looking for new ways to present things, whatever. I'm going to call this the um, science translator segment right now. What I want to do is I'm just going to read the abstract of this paper, and I'm going to translate it into English for the lay audience. Um, If you are a scientist in training, this is a really useful skill to develop. Being able to read through something and be like, huh, I wonder what that actually means. Because at first, when you start reading scientific papers, and I'm pretty sure that everyone on this podcast has dealt with this, at some time in their history, you, your first scientific paper, you read through it, and you're like, I don't have any idea what they're talking about. Um, yes. And so I'm just going to go through the abstract, and I'll just use it as a framework for the story, and it should be kind of fun and interesting. So here we go. Um, the first sentence of the abstract is, long, intergenic, non-coding RNAs are derived from thousands of loci in mammalian genomes and are frequently enriched in transposable elements. Okay, so all that means is that you have long, non-coding RNAs, which means they're segments of DNA that can be coded into RNA, but that RNA doesn't actually make a gene, but it is it can be transcribed into RNA. Um, 
and they're enriched in transposable elements. And transposable elements in this context is basically in indicating that they are leftover retroviral elements, which means that they are um, genes that were at some point a retroviral gene, but have now been passed down through many generations, thousands or millions of generations, and no longer necessarily retain their viral function. Um, and so a lot of times people think of this stuff as junk in the genome because we have a lot of retroviruses in our genome that speak to our ancestral past. A lot of them are shared with chimpanzees and other things that diverged from, from a common ancestor of ours that contracted the virus. Um, but in this particular case, they are looking at long non-coding RNAs. They don't code for a protein, and they are enriched for transposable elements, which means they are leftover retroviral um, sequences. So the next sentence is, although families of transposable element derived long, long intergenic non-coding RNAs have recently been implicated in the regulation of pluripotency, little is known of the specific functions of individual family members. Okay, so what they're doing is they're looking at these transposable element-derived non-coding RNAs, and they're looking at their um, their effect or their activity on the regulation of pluripotency. And pluripotency is just a stage of differentiation of cells, um, and in this particular case, they're referring to them in pre-human pre-implantation human development. So. What they're looking at are these long non-coding RNAs that have viral ancestry that are functional in regulating the differentiation of cells before embryo implantation. So this would be after fertilization, as the fertilized egg moves towards the uterus to be implanted, it's doing stuff. It isn't just floating around. And what it's doing is it's differentiating, it's getting ready to, be impl to implant and become a human being, so on and so forth. So these non-coding RNAs have been shown to play a role in that. But the particular roles and specific functions aren't necessarily all known because you can knock something out and say, hey, this gene's knocked out and some weird stuff happened. But we don't know exactly what it's doing. We just know that if you knock it out, bad stuff happens. And that's particularly problematic in developmental stuff because if you knock out like Hox genes, all kinds of weird stuff goes wrong. And so it really doesn't tell you anything about the Hox gene except for what it eventually will do. But in terms of its specific function, it's almost useless. So the next sentence is, here we characterize three new individual transposable element-derived human long-coding RNAs, non-coding RNAs, human pluripotency-associated transcripts 2, 3, and 5, which are HPAT2, HPAT3, and HPAT5. So basically... The history on that is they have found 23 of these transposable element non-coding RNAs. There's 23 of them. They're HPAT1 through 23, whatever. And people have been picking them off. And anybody who does science knows that this is a pretty popular thing to do. You go through and you pick off ones that look interesting and you start looking at them and coming up with specific jobs for them. Um, sometimes they're junk or they're not useful or they're, they don't do anything that you can get money for. So they get lost. But in this case, they found three of them, number two, number three, and number five, taken from that set of 23. Um, and then their experiment 
loss of function experiments indicate that HPAT2, 3, and 5 function in pre-implantation embryo development to model, modulate the acquisition of pluripotency and the formation of the inner cell mass. Okay, so what that means is these three long non-coding RNAs function in, like I said, that little pre-implantation embryo, the fertilized egg that's moving through the fallopian tube towards the uterus, whatever it's doing at that moment, and they modulate the acquisition of this first stage of differentiation and the formation of the inner cell mass. Does anybody know what an inner cell mass is? Cancer? We all work on, well, we don't all. Scott and I work on pregnancy, but. The only thing I can think of in a smooth muscle cell is you have these dense bodies that hold the actin together. This is actually a mass of cells inside. Oh, it's a whole mass of cells, not within an the individual cell. The inner cell mass. I should, not the uh -huh. intercell, intracellular. Point is, when you right before you become um, implanted, you turn into a ball. You're, like a blastocyst yeah, or something? Exactly. You're a uh -huh. ball of cells, and there are cells inside and there are cells outside. The insides become your digestive tract, basically, and the outside becomes, you know, your outside. Like, it, it's a very, very simple set of sort of formations in the beginning. It's like molding someone out of clay. You first, you know, make a ball, and then you, you hollow it out, and then you, you have a butt and a mouth and so on. So this these non-coding RNAs actually function in the formation of the interior mass of cells. And the next sentence is CRISPR-mediated disruption of genes for these long non-coding RNAs in pluripotent stem cells, followed by whole transcriptome analysis, identifies HPAT5 as a key component of the pluripotency network. Okay, that was sort of a mouthful, but we've talked about CRISPR like six times on this podcast at least, I think. Um, so all yes. CRISPR does is you're just knocking out a gene. So they say CRISPR-mediated disruption. What they mean is they use CRISPR to knock out this, these long-coding, these long non-coding RNAs in pluripotent stem cells, so stem cells that are at the same stage of differentiation, um, followed by whole transcriptome analysis, which that means that they have looked at, probably RNA-seq, um, they have looked at the entire s subset of or entire set of RNAs that have been expressed during that um, event. So they knock out these long non-coding RNAs, and then they look at what effect that has on all the other RNA in the cell. Did certain RNAs go down? Did certain RNAs go up? Because the principle of the long non-coding RNA is that it can interfere with other RNA expression. Because just like DNA, they can bind into a helix, and if a non-coding RNA binds to a coding RNA, it silences it. It prevents the the, um, the protein from being made. And there's a few different mechanisms for that. Um, so that's really what they're looking for. They're looking for genes that this particular HPAT5 um, will interact with. And if you'll notice, we've gone from transcripts 2, 3, and 5 down to just 5. And that's a pretty common thing in experimental design, you'll say, hey, I'm going to look at all of these things, and only one of them is going to be interesting. Um, hmm. And you see that in a lot of papers. You know, they're like, we tested these three things, and these two seem to have no effect, but this third one over here worked great. So 
they're really sort of narrowing down the particular long non-coding RNA that they're looking for um, or that they want to investigate. And so the next sentence is protein binding and reporter assay, reporter, sorry, protein binding and reporter-based assays further demonstrate that HPAT5 interacts with the LET7 microRNA family. LET7 is a big developmental RNA family, um, and it interacts with the microRNA family, which microRNAs are a lot like long non-coding RNAs. They work a little differently. They Sometimes they affect different types of functions and things, but it's basically the same idea. They are they affect genes. They affect the way that RNA works because RNA binds to itself and, and can affect transcription and transfer, translation. Sorry. So then their, their last sentence is, our results indicate the unique individual members of large primate-specific long non-coding RNA families modulate gene expression during development and differentiation to reinforce cell fate. So really all they're saying is that there is a selection of primate-specific long non-coding RNAs that are important, if not essential, for the differentiation of your cells in the very first stages of, of cellular replication and the very first moment of your, quote-unquote, physical life, um, these no, these non-coding RNAs are interacting with your genome and affecting your development, which, if we go back to the beginning, is absolutely fascinating because these long non-coding RNAs are leftover viruses, which means that at some point in our past, we became symbiotic with a dead virus. These, they, <laughs> they started expressing their genome, and through mutation and selection, those viruses became an integral part of what sort of defines our evolutionary path. So I think that that kind of stuff is crazy. I've always thought that how cool it was that some of these viral genomes have become relevant again later. Like they, they integrate themselves because they're retroviruses. So just like HIV or whatever, they take their genome and they stick it into yours and it becomes part of your permanent genome. And, and some of those things, they're viruses, then they die, they get, by mutation, they get blotted out and they're still there but they're not functional and then they get stuck to a promoter through some sort of transcription or sorry copying error and then you get this whole new protein or this whole new non-coding rna that totally has a an effect on the evolution of the species which is just absolutely fascinating to me so so our non-coding rna comes from viruses from generations ago not all of it but this these particular ones do is this that seems like a bigger story than this HPAP5 interacting with well, something else. I mean, HPAP5 is the virus, the leftover. Right. But, so, is, but that wasn't the point of the article. I mean, is this... I'm, no, that, I'm that, probably naive about it, but this that seems like a pretty big discovery. It, it, isn't, it isn't shocking that that viruses affect our evolutionary path. Like, we, we've known that for a while. It's just really cool when it comes up in such sort of a direct way. Like we can take these dead viruses and we can actually find f current functions for them. That doesn't mean that they're all functional. I, I'm not going to jump onto the ENCODE bandwagon and say that, you know, all the genome is functional all the time. Because um, I don't necessarily believe that. A lot of these, you know, there's 23 of these things and they found one. So there may or may not be functions for these things, but it's really cool when one of them or a couple of them really becomes functionally useful and, and changes the course of evolution 
for um, for human beings or I don't know exactly when this it's primate. So, you know, chimps have got it. Apes have got it. Um, it's not just human. So all of that stuff, you know, who knows how long ago that it jumped into the genome and then started becoming functional. So it's kind of cool. So there it is. Go team. Yeah, that is Go cool. team. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always funky to think how what a symbiosis viruses have managed to to force upon us. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like you'll need us eventually. It, it it's just a it's another sort of way to look at biology. Biology is messy, and biology is, you know, we're not sort of these strange islands of biological uniqueness that run around and have no connection to the environment. Everything and every biological sense we're all just rearrangements and it's it's really fascinating how all of this stuff sort of feeds into itself so there you go cool thanks christian so when we were talking before the show the i guess maybe this isn't quite as common or or known about as as i thought it was so have you guys heard of did you guys hear about this this trial where people died in france by this drug trial or 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 is this new to you i haven't heard of it I heard of it. Okay, so I'm just going to pretend like nobody's ever heard of this before. I guess I saw it because I, I'm interested in clinical trials, so so it kind of piqued my interest. It, but um, It was the, a big deal in the news. Well, at least it came up on my news app, I should say. Yeah, I saw it on the, like my BBC app. Like I don't like I don't have cable, so I don't know if it made the rounds very well for for your average people. But um, the the basic idea is this: that there was a, um, a a clinical trial for a new drug, which is very common. This is being done in France. This happens all the time, and it was a phase one clinical trial, which we'll explain what that means. And pretty much after a couple days after they started administering the drug, one person went into a very deep coma, eventually died. Five others were hospitalized, and. Uh, it basically went horribly wrong. You're not used to this. is uncommon to have this high-level adverse effects right out of the gate with the drug, especially a, a phase one here. So um, the drug was created by a Portuguese company called Bial, I think is how it's pronounced, B-I-A-L, and it was aimed to treat anxiety and motor disorders associated with Parkinson's disease as well as chronic pain uh, with people with cancer and other conditions. It's a pretty wide-reaching and broad. It's got a lot of... Uh, wide-reaching uh, targets this drug has, but I think it will make sense why here. So a little bit about the drug. So they, uh, the, or let's just say the trial, they recruited 128 healthy people from 18 to 55, and they were paid 2000 bucks each. And uh, we'll explain why I think phase one drug trials you should probably be very cautious doing, and it's why they pay you two grand. Um, 90 people received doses of the drug and then the remainder of the group received a placebo remainder of the 128 people here so the trial tested escalating single doses so and again i'll explain what phase one drug trials means but some people were receiving more and more over time and then all of a sudden six participants fell very ill and that had received the higher dose of the drug and as i said before one of them went into a deep coma died six of them are still in very serious condition and we don't know if they're going to pull through or not here so two days after the first onset of serious symptoms they pulled the trial and that's where we are there and the french authorities are not in and, and, and then the the french uh, uh drug trial agency are not saying what the drug was but Bial, the company the portuguese company who created this they actually said that the drug was a FAAH inhibitor. It's a fatty acid amide hydrolase inhibitor. And 
FAAH is an enzyme that your brain produces and as well as your central ner- nervous system. And what it does is it, uh, it breaks down neuro, the neurotransmitter, um, a group of them called echocannabinoids or endocannabinoids, excuse me. And by blocking this FAAH enzyme, so because this is an FAAH inhibitor, this drug, it causes these endocannabinoids to stick around longer um, so that they can act on whatever their target is. You know, think of like an SSRI, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It's the same principle. An SSRI is preventing the reuptake of the neurotransmitter into the cell. This is preventing the breakdown of the neurotransmitter, not the reuptake. But the result is the same. That neurotransmitter is around in that synaptic cleft longer so that it can interact with whatever its receptor it is. And normally, that receptor that the neurotransmitter is acting upon is downstream, i.e. that postsynaptic neuron. But they can also act on presynaptic neurons to serve as either like a positive or a negative feedback loop here. So in other words, like... The release of the neurotransmitter, uh, in this case with the endocannabinoid, it will be released by the neuron, the upstream neuron. It will float around in the synaptic cleft, and it will bind back to itself, and it will tell it, in this case, it's a negative feedback loop, so its release will immediately tell the cell to stop releasing it. The idea is that it's a very short pulse of this neurotransmitter to... to uh, uh, to prevent the the neuron from releasing too much of the neurotransmitter here, and that the the what is binding to the, the receptor is called a CB1 receptor uh, that the echocannabinoid binds to, and these echocannabinoids in this way it was actually falsely uh, uh, rumored in the press because people just read a few bullet points and they were saying that this was a a, a drug that was um, uh, cannabis based, but no, the drug itself wasn't can- cannabis based. It Break it, it prevents the breakdown of a natural occurring endocannabinoid. So it's not it, it to someone just glancing over this, not understanding the science. I could see why they would say that, but that's not the case here. And these CB1 receptors, uh, if you are into the science, and if you're not, don't worry, I'll explain this here. Uh, these are presynaptic heteroreceptors that are GPCRI receptors. These are G protein coupled receptors, which are one of the biggest branches of receptors all in, in within the neurosciences. And this is an inhibitory receptor. So when that endocannabinoid binds to this receptor, you're actually going to inhibit uh, the effect here. And this all gets really nasty as far as visualization because you have um, <laughs> the neuron it's acting upon are GABAergic um, and glutaminergic neurons, which are inhibitory neurons. So if you're ready for your brain to be completely scrambled, these neurons are inhibitory neurons, which means they stop the signal from propagating. They stop whatever signal your brain is trying to make, and they stop it from trying to, to propagate that signal down through the brain. So they're inhibitory neurons. This neurotransmitter that is released is acting on a neuro or is acting on a receptor which inhibits the release of a neuro of a neurotransmitter on an inhibitory neuron and it is causing an increase in the neurotransmitter that inhibits the inhibitory neuron so the end state is that you're actually activating this neuron through a million <laughs> confusing steps there and don't worry if that doesn't make a lot of sense to you here cuz ultimately at the end of the day you know these are inhibitory neurons and and this drug helps those neurons turn off so that they continue to propagate a signal. If you have something like a motor degeneration disease with Parkinson's, having these neurons fire may help your central nervous system to to function in a more normal manner, and I think that's the whole idea behind it. The bigger problem, though, is that 
we don't really know what this drug is. Like this happened about a week ago and uh, molecular pharmacologists, i.e. people like Christian and I, well, people with tons more experience, especially with FAAH, this enzyme here, they're saying that there are a lot, drugs like these that target FAAH have been looked at in the past, and there's a lot of off-target potential here, and and when you're looking at a phase one clinical trial, you're, this is the first time it's being tested in humans in any appreciable level, and or any real level, to be honest, and, and so... So all your previous modeling has been done in cell lines and has been done in, in, in probably mice or if you're potentially primates, but probably just mice. So, so this drug can interact with a lot of things that human cells make that are, do not exist in mice, and this is where things go wrong. So I keep talking about like what, what these trials are, what the different phases are, and, and this was a phase one trial. And phase one trials specifically are designed to mainly investigate the safety and tolerability of your drug in healthy people no sick people no people with the people you're trying with the drug you're actually trying to target are tested in this because you want to minimize variables and you don't want sick people in here so you're looking at healthy people and then you're looking at pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics uh, in people and you can have no less than 10 people in these but often a lot more in this case they had 128 people not even received the drug here Um, fun fact if you don't if you're at all interested in pharmacology uh, pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics sound the same, but they're different. Pharmacokinetics is uh, what your body does to the drug, i.e. I- how it's absorbed, distributed, metabolized, excreted. And pharmacodynamics is what the drug does to the body, so the actual effect. If you want to know like what an effective concentration is, an EC50 in a person, you're going to do a pharmacodynamic study here. But I understand that for most people, you could care less about that, but I wanted to throw that there. So that's a phase one. You're testing it in healthy people. Phase two, the drug is evaluated for its efficacy, i.e. how well it works, and safety in patients who have the specific disease you're trying to target here. And these often contain placebos and their controlled studies here. If that all goes well, so you've tested in healthy people, you've tested it in a small group of sick people, you go into a phase three trial, phase three clinical trials, the drug is in a, given to a very large group. And when they talk about how it takes like $10 billion, $5 billion to bring a drug to, 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 uh, to, to market, a lot of that cost is in these phase three trials. It can give, it's normally given to thousands of patients across different, uh, uh, often different countries, different ethnicities, different ages, and they're double blinded and they are just outrageously expensive, but naturally very critical to ensure that your drug is working properly and it's not gonna kill a lot of people. And then phase four is the very last phase of drug trials. And this is called a post-marketing surveillance trial. And this is after the drug has been approved and it's already been marketed, so you'd see a TV commercial for it, but it's still technically a phase four trial, which means it can be pulled back. And they're gathering information on the drug's effects to various populations and side effects associated with long-term use that you wouldn't see in like a phase one, two, or three trial. They're, they're following the drug for years to see if there's anything coming up in the data that could be, that could be you know, deleterious or, or harmful to, to large groups of people. So that's basically your phases there here. And so... Why do we? Ha- this is why we have these drug trials, though. We look at this. We're like, how could this drug possibly get out there and it kills these people? What's going wrong? Like, you know, there's problems here. But this is exactly why we have the trials. We gave it to a relatively small group of people, volunteers who were paid for their time, and to see if going from an animal model to human model had significant differences. And it turns out it did. And normally, most of the time, the difference is that it just doesn't work in humans. 
in this case, it turned out to be deadly at a certain concentration. These people who got sick and died were at a the highest well, I should say they were they'd received the highest dose of the group. So clearly there was a cutoff where in the animal model, when they did uh, safety trials in the animal model, the animals were able to tolerate much higher doses. And there was that dose in humans that they assumed based on the animal model models would be fine. But it turned out it wasn't fine, and they hit basically a cliff, and at a certain concentration, it is lethal in humans here. So so that's why we have these trials. And it's also why, you know, I understand the importance of clinical trials, and they're critical to getting safe drugs out there. But if I had a legend out there, I'd tell them to be very cautious in participating in a phase one clinical trial because we don't know how it's going to act in humans. That's the whole point behind it. And, uh, and this is what happens here. So it's kind of a, it's a necessary evil right now. We don't have computer programs that can model out exactly how it's going to act in humans. Like some people would think that there are, they are not. This is why we do this. It's extremely expensive and it's still way more beneficial and useful than what we get from computer modeling. So it's just a, just a nature of the beast here. So if I haven't completely confused you, um, I, I, uh, what? I don't know. That's what? that. I'm confused. What? But. <laughs> so yeah, drug trials are, are tricky and they're difficult. That's really the end state of it. And that's why we have a very specific way we test drugs. And this was done really exactly to the book. Now the big question will be is, did this by all company, did they, were they appropriate in how they did their test to ensure the, their proposed safety and efficacy before they went to humans, and I'm sure they're going to be digging through books to make sure they did it by the book um, to see who's going to get sued, which is probably what's going to happen. So, yeah. um, there you go, there you go. Drugs kill people. Okay. Okay. What's our time here? Our time is 46 minutes. Dale, can you do a five to seven minute story? I don't know. Or do you just want to put it back? How about we it's try it out? Let's do it. All right. So you guys, oh, am I supposed to come up with some segue? I didn't hear your segue. Mine was a uh, internally expressed. He's lying. <laughs> Silent but effective. So drugs are made up of chemicals, which are made up of elements. Ta-da! <laughs> Nicely done. So recently, this was actually a few weeks ago. I apologize for the my late reporting of it, but the there were some discoveries made in the periodic table. Elements 113, 113, 115, 117, and 118 have been... Last week's episode was 118. You should have brought it up then, stud. Oh, I'm sorry. Failure. Now you're going to have to create periodic table element 119 this week. And 20, so you can bring it up next week. Well, that's Get a good it. question, because it comes to... Oh, wait. Yeah, yeah, because we don't have that. So that's part of another question. When will we reach the end of the periodic <laughs> Very table? profound. <laughs> so, yeah, so 118 is the last one, basically. So if you remember back to chemistry you learned in school, you probably were exposed to the periodic table. And so all those... These elements were just recently formally recognized by IUPAC, which is the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry. Uh, we've actually known about them for a while. So uh, some of the elements in the periodic table are obvious ones. 
and other ones um, are less obvious, meaning that the um, elements that make them up are very short-lived and and many times they have to be created artificially. And that was the case for this. There, This was a, for elements 115, 117, and 118, it was actually a joint effort by um, a lab in Russia, uh, Oak Ridge uh, National Lab in Tennessee, and Lawrence Livermore. And 113 was discovered by scientists working out of Japan. And so none of these have ever been observed in nature. As I said, all of them had to be made up synthetically in a lab. And the reason why we know about these, though, is because the periodic table has actually been around for a while. And if you remember, what the, peri the periodic table is arranged according to the uh, atomic structure for each of these elements. And it has to do with the number of... Uh, electrons that they have, and then the number of um, valence electrons. But we're not here with our limited amount of time to discuss the periodic table, so you'll notice I've been referring to these as elements 113, 15, 115, 117, and 118. Do they have fun names yet instead of their boring, like, dodeca, octa, whatever? Nope. So, anuntrium, anunpentium. Ununceptium and Ununoctium uh, are the names that they've been referred to as now. But now that they're recognized, guess what? Scientists get to name them. So what would you guys name an element that you had discovered? Super Barnettium. Balls. <laughs> Super Barnettium. Balls. So Ball, uh, Carolina? Balkenbushium. So Balkenbushium, ooh, that's good. <laughs> so Balkenbushium <laughs> and Super Barnett would be applicable because those could be names of scientists, but I'm sorry, Christian Balls could not. So new elements Damn. have to be Dr. named. Dr. Balls? Can only, I think I saw porn with him. Can only, that's a real person. Can only be named after their own properties, mythological concepts, minerals, places, countries, or scientists. So there could be like a leprechaunium? Yeah, but no balls. Like, yes. what's up with that? <laughs> and in any case, the IU pack will have to um, give it the final okay for whatever you pick. And I'm pretty sure they're not going to go with balls. I, I apologize. That's a hard sell. <laughs> hard sell. Yeah, balls don't get hard. <laughs> yeah, so that's it. We have uh, finally, we've completed the seventh row, so, or in other words, the seventh period of the periodic table is now complete. And so the question is, when are we going to get to add new elements. Um, there are some who feel that this that's the end of it, that anything beyond No, this, I've heard about that this. You can have, are you going to talk about what I think you're going to talk about? Uh, possibly, that electrons would have to be going at like the speed of light. But um, that's usually due, and Feynman is kind of credited for this, but that's because people have, are the critics of this who say that we can actually go up to about element 173. Uh, is that Feynman made the assumption that the nucleus is just a single point, but using their modeling techniques, if you allow it to be a ball of particles, then they think that you can get up to 173. And at this point, though, what's really cool is that atoms might start summoning electrons from empty space. And so we really don't know what these atoms would look like. But That would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, when I think we're kind of roundabout going to this this whole idea and, and, and you'll actually see this in some super nerd science fiction 
uh, which is these islands of stability, they call it. The idea being that when you get to a certain number of electrons, a certain number of neutrons, protons, all that, that you, these, you know, most of these chemicals you're talking about, or I should say these, sorry, these atoms you're talking about have lifespans of like milliseconds, microseconds, picoseconds, you know what I mean? And when you, you'll get to a certain point where they, the island of stability, where you actually have a molecule that is stable, like shelf stable and so maybe you know element 146 is something you could make a bunch of and just put on a shelf and in the science fiction they use it for these like impenetrable armors and stuff like that you know what i mean because it's 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 like 60 times denser than lead so like you know you can use it for space protection you know i'm really nerding out here but that's the idea yeah yeah i mean who knows People think that like molecular biologists, biochemists, pharmacologists are all the, m- relatively the same, but like chemistry is a whole different beast. It is people who are good at chemistry are nothing like us. They're real scientists. So, yes, they're real scientists. <laughs> <laughs> so, I have some so. questions for you guys on the periodic table if you're ready. Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Why does that have to follow that? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm just going to use that a lot now. I love it so much. Almost as much as your your difficult enunciations of the uh, elements 113 (laughs) through 115, which will come back to haunt me. Which will come back to haunt you. Great, thanks. So what's the theme this week, Dr. Dell? Elements. So I want you guys to tell me what you think is the order of the discovery of the following elements. Technetium, hydrogen, and helium. Which came first? Which came second? Oh, I love this! So, I'm not going to wager a guess yet, but I can tell you from... I'll give everyone this equal hint. Can you say the first one again? Technetium? Technetium. And technetium, I know this because the year after I left the Marine Corps, I worked for Johnson & Johnson as a medical hey. device sales hey. representative. Keep it to yourself. Well, I'll just be the first one to go then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or maybe I'll just... <laughs> or you should be the last one. I mean, or whatever. Talk um, away. Yeah, I, I feel like I am I played my hand here. I'm like, guess who has two aces? <laughs> what do you have? <laughs> um... So wait, it was a uh, technetium. Carolina, uh, Carolina can go first. All right, but what were the other two? Hydrogen and helium. So wait a minute. Helium. Just to clarify, are we looking for when they were discovered as a thing, or when they were added to the periodic table? Like when they were confirmed to exist, exist and okay. when they were discovered, basically. Yes. Okay. Uh, do I have to give Not a year? Or can I just give an order? They were we're at a lot of thoughts on this a lot of thoughts okay uh, just yeah give me your oldest to newest okay helium hydrogen technetium okay right, christian you go i'm gonna go hydrogen helium technetium yeah oh god this is dell this Scott. is hard because well can i just give my thought process just a little no. bit <laughs> we're only we're only at 54 minutes we can do this we're 55 minutes uh 
What's hard about hydrogen versus helium is that we all know that helium is the product of fusion in the sun. And so if you're doing spec spectro spec spectrography, spectrography, spectroscopy. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the word. Uh, if you want to break apart the light spectrum, which we've been able to do for a couple hundred, maybe 300 years, I'm guessing, you know, you can see hydrogen versus helium. So if you want to go way back when and you want to look at the sun, you're going to see hydrogen and helium. And so you have that whole aspect of it. Helium, on the other hand, is available in reservoirs on planet Earth, as we all know, because we've all had balloons at parties before. So maybe it was discovered without the uh, uh, without this spectrographic analysis available to it, uh, whereas hydrogen you would expect to be more available or more readily discovered because it's like 98% of the entire universe. So with that being said, technetium is used in a lot of medical ap applications. It's got a relatively short half-life. It's something like 12 hours or something so you can put it in an individual you can get the whatever radiographic analysis you want from that decay of that element uh, without it staying in the person for decades so it's a so they don't get cancer so it's a nice thing for for the medical community that to me clearly is the last one I'm gonna go helium because we could find it on earth then hydrogen and then technetium and therefore we need dates at this point, right? Or at yes. least one date that we can compare against. Because you and I are both helium, right? Or uh -huh. I win. <laughs> or you win. Yes. That's Possibly. Yes. Sure. So, yeah. So give me give me your... Uh, hang on. Just so tell, you, do, do we need a tiebreaker or did we both lose? Just give us a, yeah, do we, give us a time period okay. for the discovery of all three of you. What year was helium discovered? Then I clearly lost, so... So we can, we, we can just do helium because then it doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. It's... All right, so I'll I'll throw a date out, and you can just say above or below, right? Sure. I'm gonna say 1794. I'll go uh, 1830. I would say earlier than that, but I'm out, so I don't count. Well, no, you can each guess. No, it's we already have an 1830, so you've got a nine-year range Christian? now. No, change no I'm saying it's way earlier than Scott's guess. What do you think? Oh. Um, I'm going to say, what What year did you say, Scott? 1794. 1794. So I'm going to say 1791. You son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. You did that to me, so it's fair. Well, so you're not even playing this game anymore. Like, you either won or you Del didn't. Has, you know? his, he, he did win. One, so. he, Christian oh, he won. did win. Yes. Yeah! Hydrogen, seventeen sixty-six. So, nice. very good. It was actually technically discovered by Robert Boyle, um, and he was doing some sort of experiment where he observed in a reaction between iron fillings and dilute acids that there was some gas produced. But it was actually Henry Cavendish, back in seventeen seventy-six, who was the one who collected it oh, and sure. identified it. Helium is the second oldest, and that was discovered, as Scott was sort of talking about, um, while a F Pierre Janssen, a French astronomer, was observing a solar eclipse in India, and he had observed uh, yellow spectral emission lines of the element. Um, so that was the really the first discovery of helium. And then, yes, technetium, as we could probably all guess, um, was in 1936. Uh, Scott talked so about it, well, a little I'm bit. I'm sorry, of, what was the year of, of, of uh, helium? 
1868. Oh, okay. Um, and technetium is interesting for a few reasons. I liked it because we were talking about these new elements. Um, technically, they were discovered long ago, just when we wrote up the periodic table. But uh, they weren't observed until uh, recently. The same thing with technetium. And it, to me, it seems like it's kind of this first one where a lot of people... Um, new due to Mendeleev's periodic table. So he's the one who uh, came up with the periodic table we're most familiar with, that there was a gap missing between um, 42 element 42 and element 44. And there were a whole bunch of people who thought that they had discovered what we now know as technetium starting actually in 1828. And um, they turned out to be iridium was one thing, itri yttrium, I don't know how to say that, and rhenium. Um, but it was not until, yes, 1936 that technetium was actually um, observed and discovered, so to speak. So well done, Christian. You rocked it. Yay, that nice. means I've won like two. Uh, much more important to your victory here, you've actually slid from last place to third place. Yes. Yes. There is a someone who's been deeply schmuckified by the name of Scott Barnett. I have won 33% of my games. Dell, you've taken the lead. Sixty yeah. percent of all games you played, you've won. Oh. Christian, you're at thirty-six percent. So uh, I think with margin of error, you and I are pretty much bringing up the the, the tail here. And Carolina, you're just floating somewhere in the middle of nowhere. I am as so, good uh, as guessing. <laughs> Slightly better than guessing. No, you've played eleven. You've won four. So, but there's three of us, right? So I like oh I'm yeah, so it'd be a third. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. I'm exactly as good as guessing. Well, that's nice. Okay. Um, hold on. Good show. Wow, that's great radio. <laughs> <laughs> that's just yeah. what I was thinking. I'm like, that doesn't happen. On I podcast. hope you weren't. I hope you just weren't falling asleep <laughs> when that happened. Oh man, so Del, do we have an outro, or are we 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 passing on that? Thanks for tuning in to episode 119. Oh, hold on, shoot. Oh no, I hit the wrong button. I hit the outro button. And there's no way to stop it. Banana a little flat? Cucumber not ready for a good pickling? Carolina suggests eating both while you walk if you want to counter those effects of ED. The next time you get a cold, show some respect to your elder virus. It might just shape future generations according to the study Christian broke down for us. In English, thank you. The first time that virally derived RNA has been shown to be involved with human development. According to Scott, drug trials are tricky. Thanks for that brilliant synopsis, Scott Barnett. <laughs> Finally, have no yeah, fear. We can crop. all rest easy. New elements, anuntrium, anunpentium, anunceptium, and anunctium have finally been discovered and bring I am so mad I missed that entire outro. <laughs> Why'd you miss the entire outro? My mom was trying to FaceTime me in the middle of it. <sighs> oh. <laughs> well, I blew it too. I hit the wrong button. The whole thing was just a train wreck. Uh, but Dell did a beautiful job as always. Oh, well, I guess I'll have to listen to this episode. Uh, I, I I know. God forbid <laughs> that you penance. actually download an episode. <laughs> or just fast forward. To All the right. End. Like. <laughs> well, give us give us some love on on Twitter, Tinder, uh, Facebook, and please swipe right. Rate us on iTunes. Swipe right. 
I want a t-shirt. Yeah. Let's say Beta Sandwich Science Podcast. Swipe right. Swipe right. <laughs> oh my god, we have to do that. We have to do that. Yeah. All right. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. <laughs>